Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, with co-host Patricia Glover-Howard. Hi, Patricia. Well, Patricia will monitor the chat room and summarize your comments. Well, I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, tonight's show will feature four genealogists who will speak on their genealogical experience as descendants of Oklahoma freedmen. The freedmen were those men, women, and children once enslaved by citizens of the five civilized tribes. The panelists will share the genealogical process and the documents they used to uncover their family history. The panelists are Angela Walton Raji, Ronald Graham, Terry Ligham, and Nika Sul Smith, and their profiles will be is available for you to review. Now, before we get into our discussion tonight, Angela Walton Raji will give us a brief overview of the ruling that the descendants of black slaves known as freedmen who were once owned by members of the Cherokee Nation have a right to tribal citizenship under a ruling handed down by a federal court in Washington, D.C. Now, when we planned this panel discussion, we had no idea. We did not even anticipate that the U.S. District Judge Thomas Hogan would rule yesterday in a long-standing dispute between the Cherokee Freedmen and the second largest tribe in the United States. So, Angela, please give us an overview of the implications of this ruling. 
Well, uh, thank you, Bernice. Uh, also, thank you for having having all of us as guests tonight. This is a topic that uh, touches actually thousands of people, many of us who descend from the freedmen of the five, as they are sometimes called civilized, unquote, tribes uh, from Indian territory. Um, this saga really began. Now, many people are not aware that Cherokees, Choctaws, Chickasaw Creeks, and Seminoles were among the uh, many people, of course, who held African people in bondage as uh, chattel slaves. And there are many different stories, five different tribes, five unique stories in terms of how things unfolded for the enslaved people. Um, at the end of the Civil War, the Treaty of 1866 was signed in Fort Smith, Arkansas. And over the next several decades, uh, various things happened from one tribe to another in terms of the role that the newly freed people, called freedmen, um, were treated, how their citizenship was handled. Off and on, um, some and some tribes held offices in the tribal council, as did happen in the Cherokee Nation, in fact. And um, things happened, of course, as the years went by. Statehood came in 1907. And uh, people within the Cherokee Nation exercised many rights, including voting rights, through the years. They received uh, land allotments, as did their other compatriots in their nation. And um, they lived as citizens. This particular saga began approximately in 1983 when Reverend Robert Nero, who was an elderly man, a freedman descendant, showed up to vote in a Cherokee election. And he had voted before, um, he had voted in the previous election, but on this particular time, he was told, um, you people can't vote. We all know the you people um, um, term and what that means. And uh, because he did not have, quote, unquote, Cherokee blood. Now, those of us who also have ancestors in the South, we know what that means. It's like the old grandfather clause, like the old poll tax laws of the Deep South, but Oklahoma is a southern state in, in many ways. Uh, 1984, he and others filed a class action suit in federal court. Um, what had happened, however, the tribe argued that this was a tribal matter, not a federal issue, and uh, it was ruled in favor of the tribe, that, okay, let the tribe handle it. We don't have to deal with it in our court. The appeals court also then held on to that ruling and said, oh, okay, well, five years later, of course, um, this was still going on, but it was decided to allow the tribes to do what they were talking about. I'll expand it for a half a second and just point out the other tribes, former slaveholding tribes, with exception of the Seminole Nation, uh, they were expelling their freedmen descendants as well. We're talking the 1980s, the 20th century. Um, then, of course, in 1998, um, Bernice Rogers Riggs, now she's a descendant of some of the slaves held by Clem Van Rogers, who's the father of the famous humorist Will Rogers. He came from a slaveholding family. She challenged the situation when she had applied and had been denied admission because, hey, you're a freedman, you can't be a member of the nation. But she challenged it in Cherokee Court. At that time, 1998, I was contacted myself, in fact, by one of the attorneys, and I, uh, I was a witness uh, in her case. That was the summer of 1998, and it would be years before anything else would happen and a decision would even be made. And, of course, it was not ruled in her favor. Fast forward then to 1991, um, 
I had made a personal discovery on my own family, um, uh, moving closer to Washington, decided to go and do some research there after having attending, attended a conference where uh, someone had mentioned the five civilized tribes. And I discovered um, from the records that I found, my great-grandmother, whom I had known and loved when I was a child, she had been born enslaved in the Choctaw Nation. I found her enrollment card, and I was just stunned to find my own family, and especially when I saw, you know, the slave of column. But nevertheless, um, I ended up writing a book about that, and uh, people began to really start to respond um, to the fact that, oh, someone's finally talking about the genealogy of Friedman. Um, go move up a, another decade. I received a call, in fact, from Marilyn Van. Um, um, she had, I guess, seen my name someplace as well. And so she began to talk about the fact that she was frustrated. She had been denied enrollment again. And because her father and her grandparents were on the Friedman role, she um, talked uh, a lot about things, and many of us in the genealogy community were also, you know, beginning to talk about this. It had never happened before. I know Terry from way back in the day when we were even planning the first gathering of freedmen in Tulsa, and many of us met um, um, at a church um, in the Greenwood District in Tulsa for the first time. Marilyn went on to establish, uh, she and others, I think Ron was a member and is still a member of that organization, of a group of, of freedmen descendants once again, uh, looking at the fact that, wait a minute, something has happened. Uh, people who are descendants of freedmen of the tribe, who have been citizens, uh, have been in Indian territory since the 1830s, are no longer admitted into the, the nation of their ancestors, of their parents, their grandparents, great-grandparents, but people who are on a blood roll or descend from people on a blood roll and intermarried whites are admitted into the tribe. We are talking about um, people who also have less than one one-thousandth degree, if you can even measure blood, which is ridiculous, uh, of Indian blood, but uh, who are mostly Caucasian, are welcomed into the tribe. Miss Van um, sued the tribe. We were talking again at 2001. Um, and, um, again, it was one of those cases where, um, you know, hey, you're, you're a freedman. This is not going to happen. Um, three years later, 2004, Lucy Allen and other Cherokee freedmen filed a case in Cherokee court, really pointing out that this was very unconstitutional. And, uh, and of course, I always point out to people how ironic the constitution of the Cherokee Nation, the very first line begins, the law of the United States is the law of the land. That's in the Cherokee Constitution. But uh, what happened was that the Appeals Council ruled in favor of Lucy Allen, opening the doors finally, this is 2004, for freedmen to apply for citizenship. Then uh, a ruling was made in 2006. Uh, this is sort of a back and forth thing. You can see that make a little step and then a push back and then a make another little step. Um, uh, as soon as the, the um, ruling, excuse me, ruling for the freedmen occurred, the sitting chief at the time decided that um, he wanted to expel the freedmen, and this became a mission. He decided, well, let's put it to a vote. And now he had a special election, point out that millions of dollars were now being spent of the tribe's money to now fight the enrollment of people whose ancestors 
had been enslaved. It, it kind of boggles the mind when one hears it. But uh, 3% of the people voted in this special expulsion vote or special expulsion election. And um, uh, of the 3 70% voted to kick the freedmen out. Now, in that little gap of time, about 2,800 people hadn't, had registered when the ruling had come in 2006 in favor of Lucy Allen and other freedmen. Um, in fact, one of our panelists, Anika Smith, I think her application uh, is not among the 2,800, uh, but it's now sitting on the desk of someone's desk in Tahlequah uh, because when they close the doors again after the, hey, you all have to go, we've, uh, we've taken it to the people, um, then, of course, it's sitting there unprocessed. Um, 2012, a case was filed when the Cherokee Nation um, and their argument, we don't have to admit former slaves as citizen. There's a countersuit, another suit, a countersuit. It's, it's just been a back-and-forth issue in the tribe. In 2013 in May, there was a hearing held in federal court in Washington, D.C. I had the opportunity to attend that hearing. Marilyn Van was there. Uh, of course, John Beeley, the, the uh, attorney. Uh, David Cornsilk, who's been an advocate for Friedman for quite some time. Ron Graham was there that, that, for that hearing as well as uh, Attorney John Beeley argued on their behalf. It has been a long wait. Um, in fact, ironically, I was just having a conversation earlier in the day uh, with Terry. We're talking about something different. And I said, yeah, isn't it something? It's apparently, you know, they wait years to make a decision as we've all been waiting for the Cherokee case. And lo and behold, in the afternoon, um, Finally, Judge uh, Thomas F. Hogan, who's a senior United States District Judge, ruled that Cherokee freedmen have the rights guaranteed to them as full citizens at the treaty, meaning the Treaty of 1866 promise. And I'll just simply leave with uh, that sort of summary um, with some words uh, from Judge Hogan. And I quote, when the Cherokee people wrote into their constitution in 1866, all native-born Cherokees, all Indians and whites, legally members of the nation by adoption, and all freedmen shall be taken and deemed to be citizens of the Cherokee Nation. They fixed the status of the freedmen and raised them to the rank of citizenship, which they themselves enjoyed. Thenceforth, he was to be equal with themselves under the constitution, governed by the same laws, enjoying the same rights, possessed of the same immunities, and entitled to the same protection. If the common property was to be retained for the general welfare, he was to share equally in its benefits. If it was to be sold and proceeds divided, the Constitution made it as much his as theirs, end quote. Uh, so that kind of summarizes things. Needless to say, uh, my, my ancestors were Choctaw Freedmen, but I am still jubilant and joyful of the ruling and am celebrating with my brothers and sisters from the Cherokee Nation, as I'm sure are all the panelists. And um, it's a complicated story, but it's a simple origin. The origin comes from America's original sin, black chattel slavery, but uh, of which uh, five tribes also participated. So um, I hope well, I didn't thank you so much. very much. I think that 
You're excited. Everyone is excited that this ruling uh, did come down yesterday. And there's a comment out of the, the chat room from Ellen. It's an amazing moment when information is shared by descendants and take a path that ultimately restores their belonging. And oh, so, wow. Wow. <laughs> So Angela, yes. I'm I'm just happy that you you have been there. You have been monitoring and Terry and Ron and Nika. I know we're going to celebrate when when your papers get signed. But let's start off with you, Angela, and everyone. That Angela was just giving us a brief overview of the ruling. But Angela does host the African Native American Gene Genealogy blog, the African Native American Genealogy website, and she hosts the longest-running me message board focusing on research and freedmen of the five civilized tribes. So, Angela, give us a brief overview of how did you get involved in this in the beginning? You did mention moving to Washington, D.C., but take us through your journey. Well, my journey really began in my childhood. I grew up uh, in, in a border city, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And when I say border, it borders on the state of Oklahoma. But if you know anything about Oklahoma's history uh, prior to 1907, that space that we now called uh, that we now call Oklahoma was Indian Territory. And my city in particular, uh, if you're on the northern side of the city, the westernmost part of the city borders on the old Cherokee Nation. And uh, the southern part of the city, southern part of town, borders on the old Choctaw Nation. And uh, my great-grandmother, and it was never a secret, we always knew that, uh, my great-grandmother, who uh, did not pass away until 1961, so I knew her, and um, she was Choctaw. That was never a question. And in a city like Fort Smith, just about everybody is either Choctaw or Cherokee in that particular community. Um, and uh, anytime we would go into Oklahoma, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, Nana, she's, she's Choctaw. And we all knew that. Uh, one time, at least in my lifetime, her brother, Uncle Joe, came to visit her, and they just went out and uh, we were kind of fascinated because we couldn't understand them. They were having a conversation in, in their native Choctaw language. And uh, so there's something that was always interesting. My genealogical journey with uh, particularly Friedman Records, because uh, I did not know she was a Friedman. I just knew she was a Choctaw. And uh, in 1991, in May, I decided to make a trip to the National Archives, and I did. And uh, that was when I discovered something called an enrollment card of Choctaw Friedman. I did notice there was a little piece of paper in the family Bible that had her name and a number next to her name. As it turns out later, that number next to her name was her roll number on the Dawes roll. And um, so, of course, I realized also on that card it mentioned that she was a slave of someone called Emmeline Perry. And I'm thinking a slave of someone. I knew someone who had been born a slave, number one. That was a surprise. But then what do you mean? This says Choctaw Nation. What do you mean slave of someone? And next to my great-grandfather's name, there was the slaveholder there. So I decided I've got to understand, I've got to learn what is this history and what created this. And that began my mission. Um, two years later, I ended up writing a book on um, black Indian genealogy, particularly from the five civilized tribes. 
and uh, which was the first time in the genealogy community ever, ever, ever that freedmen were ever mentioned. There have been books on Indian genealogy. There have been uh, there was a series of books um, on Cherokee by blood. There have been genealogy workshops. None of the people in the genealogy community ever, ever, ever even mentioned the Friedman records. I found not only Choctaw Friedman in my family, the Perrys and the Waltons, but I found Cherokee Friedman, Chickasaw Friedman, Creek Friedman, Seminole Friedman. So I had a tremendous uh, learning curve. I had to educate myself. And I began to realize, wow, there are literally thousands of us. There are thousands of us who are part, credible uh, community of people, almost, I'll say, erased from history. If you look at a map depicting slavery in North America, you always see this empty spot right above Texas. It's never shaded in as being slave territory, but it was. My ancestors were enslaved. Um, And, of course, there were many people of color who were there who were also free people. But the fact is that we cannot omit the fact that slavery occurred, that the same tribes that held people in bondage signed an alliance in 1861 with the Confederacy and fought for the South. I had to learn all of that. But what I found were three, I'll say three primary record sets, but I'm still finding new records. I found a set of records called enrollment cards. I found something called application jackets or applications for enrollment. And, of course, the final role that everybody starts off with, were they on the roll? Uh, If you are doing research online or if you're doing research at uh, a library or archives, you want to look at the National Archives publication number M1186, M1186. That is where you find the enrollment cards of the citizens, including freedmen, of the five tribes. These are cards where just information was filled out about the person who was enrolling and their parents. Every single person, including my great-grandmother, who's the only name I knew, and my great-grandfather, but their parents on the back side of their card were there. I was just stunned to find that. Every single dog's card has multiple generations on it. So that is a, is a treat. And um, so it's something that, um, you know, I would just sort of stop and I'll pass the baton over. Uh, enrollment cards, application jackets, and the final rows are the three primary records to use. And I'm sure my colleagues have other things to say about them. And I'll turn it over to your next guest. Okay, so we're going to have Ron Graham uh, share with us uh, his genealogical experience. Now, Ron is active in many aspects of genealogy of the Oklahoma Freedmen and with strong family uh, relationships to the Muscogee Creek Nation, he has served for several years as the president of the Muscogee Creek Freedmen Band. So, Ron, please, we're ready to hear you and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, excellent. First of all, thank you for having me on this panel. I sure appreciate it. And, uh, yes, I was born and raised in Okmulgee, Oklahoma, right in the heart of the Muscogee Creek Nation. And I grew up there and graduated from Okmulgee. 
But uh, it was until 1983, after my first year of college, that I uh, really got involved in uh, genealogy. I was first looking for my father's roll number. Uh, we knew he was an Indian. I always grew up thinking he was a full-blood Indian because I didn't know it was any other type of Indian, such as one-quarter or one-eighth, something of that nature. But I, I found his um, roll number when I went to the Creek Nation to enroll back in 1983, and I asked the lady that um, my dad was an Indian and I needed to be enrolled, and I gave her the, the name. They called my dad Blue. And I said Blue Graham, but his real name was Theodore Graham. And at that time, she went to the back and came back, and she said, yes, he was a, he has a roll number, but he was a freedman. And I said, a freedman? I've never heard that word before. And I said, she said, yeah, he wasn't nothing but a slave. And I said, oh, my goodness, my dad was born in 1902, and I knew good and well he wasn't a slave. So um, at that time, I, I um, th- that was hard pill to swallow right there. I went and talked to my uh, my sister about it in Oakmo again. That that whole day we just discussed uh, the, the, our family, the, the history, and things of that nature. Because uh, my my dad was a traditional. He he spoke the language, the the Creek language, um, and uh, he he was went to the stomp dances. He led the stomp dances or powwows. And so I always thought that he was a a, um, a, a full-blood Indian. I never heard, like I stated, I never had heard of a, a freedman. So from that point on, I did. I started with my family research with my dad. Got his roll number, his enrollment jacket, and, and and then just got his mother. His mother's name was Creasy Graham. She had a roll number, uh, and uh, her parents was on the the um, on the doll's roll, and his name is, her father's name was um, Joe Hutton or Grayson and Amelia Hutton. And so that was, that right there was a, a, a lot of information for me right there. And it even told me Joe Hutton's dad, whose name was Jim Grayson. And Jim Grayson's Indian name, there was a, 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 um, Testimony when they became uh, enrolled, it had Jim Grayson's Indian name down as Chinny Chotky, and that he was a half breed, half colored, and half uh, Indian. So at that time, it was a lot of information. Uh, I found out their their land allotment. Now, as you know, every, everyone has heard of 40 acres and a mule. And so my in the Creek Nation, everyone, including the freedmen, Babla, they all got. 160 acres. Uh, my my father got one, uh, 160 acres. His siblings got 160 acres. The ones who received a a uh, a roll number. Um, and so there was some information in there that you can look up. Uh, there where their land was at. Although the, they didn't keep it long, there's still a, a bit of information that you could use. And so the. Um, after that, I, I looked into my on my mother's side. Her her mother, my grandmother, had a roll number, and her parents had a roll number. So, uh, as you stated earlier, I, there were roll numbers with my father, my grandfather, um, uh, grandmother. I had a lot of roll numbers that I can do research on, and all of them was on that Friedman roll. But um, 
the the information was excellent. It it, it just got me to um, to wanting to look up more that I could, and uh, my family couldn't believe it. They they always thought that um, that my father was you know by blood, or he, that he was. They didn't know too much about the freedmen also. So we had to educate ourselves about this situation. And So, so how did you go about educating yourself about these records, especially since you, you grew up thinking you were by blood, you didn't know anything about freedmen. So tell us a little bit about this process, because I'm sure we have so many listeners tonight wanting to know, well, how did you do this? Well, it started uh, me talking with my siblings. Uh, when I reached out to them, they gave me the, a lot of information. You know, that with that information, I, I went and, and did research. I searched for this. I call it search and research. I did the research on this, and, and everything they were telling me was true. But still, yet I could not find a blood quantum which was vital. In the uh, to get enrolled in, in these trials, but that ruling yesterday just uh, that kind of voided that out for the Cherokee Freedom. That was an excellent ruling, but I mainly talk with my siblings, with cousins, with with uncles, whoever I could. Aunt, I I talk with them about you know. What do you know? What is your knowledge about this? And that's what really got me started right there. And I was, I just had a, a strong tesi- desire to get this correct, and and that's why I did that like that. So when you said you went to them, so they had information, and you also said you did research. So doing research, did it mean going to records, going to the library, give us an idea of just where did you look? Because I think people are probably wondering. You talked to your family members; they told you something, but mm-hmm. you had to. You wanted to verify that, and as you said, the blood quantum was a, was an issue, but it's not anymore. But tell us exactly what what documents did you find? Okay, I I, I did. I started going to the uh, library. And Okmulgee, that's where I started going okay. to. And then um, when I moved to Oklahoma City, I went to the Oklahoma History Center. Oh, that was my second home. I stayed there. I went there just about every day when it was open. And the records that I find was, the, as uh, Angela stated earlier, the, the census cards. You had the, the roll numbers. You had to get the roll number. After you have get, have gotten the roll number, you had to get the the census card number, and uh, mm-hmm. the census card number had a lot of information. Had some information that you can uh, definitely do uh, research on. And just like my dad, his roll number was newborn six seventy one, and his mom was Creasy uh, Graham. Her roll number was nine forty four. And so went to her roll number, her census card. It led me to. Her parents, which is Joe Hutton, his roll number was 835, and, and Creasy's mother was Amelia Hutton, and her roll number was 836. And though I got that off of the census card. It even told Joe Hutton's um, another name he had. His other name was Joseph Grayson. 
and it, it gives you a, his his parents, like I stated a moment ago, of Jim Grayson and um, Vina, um, uh, um, Venus Grayson, excuse me. And so um, from that point, they had they had uh, enrollment applications or enrollment jackets that you can read up on, and such as my father's enrollment application. Uh, he had a birth affidavit in there, and from that birth affidavit, I actually went and got him a delayed birth certificate, although he was born in 1902. Uh, I have a delayed birth certificate for my father and before statehood, so that's very unique right there. They don't even do that anymore, but that they had to, for the newborn and minors, they should have a birth affidavit in there, which was excellent. It was equivalent to a birth certificate r- right now. So th- that was some of the things that I used. Uh, you, there was there were many roles that I went to. Uh, you had that eighteen um, the eighteen eighty five through eighteen ninety cents ninety six Creek. Citizenship Commission role. You had the, uh, of course, the Dawes role. Then you had a Dunn role. The Dunn role was the first role after the after the Civil War. It was back in 1867, and this role was for all the citizens of the Creek Nation, even including the Creek freedmen. But and it was a payment role. Most of these roles were payment roles, and this was a payment role back in 1867. And uh, each each uh, citizen got uh, a payment such as seventeen dollars and thirty four cents, but they excluded the the people of African descent. And I say that because some of these people of African descent uh, that that were deemed freedmen were uh, Indian by blood, but uh, they was uh, they were still excluded. But back in and they came back in. Um, 1869 to give them that payment. Also, the the um, the people of African descent they gave them a payment of seventeen thirty seventeen dollars and thirty four cents. So there's there's a lot of roles. Once you go to these um, the history center or, or, or some place that you can do your research, and they would have a list of those roles. Uh, there was uh, many of the roles that you can look on. The 1867 Dunn Road, what I just spoke about, the 1869, there's an 1870 Loyal Creek Claim Roll. There's Creek Annuity Payment uh, Payrolls. Several roles that I've looked at to to come up with the documentation that I do have. That is excellent. Now, I understand that you actually are teaching – you're teaching about Cherokee ancestry, and you're really trying to help people understand just where these roles are and how to go about analyzing them. Can you give us an idea of how often you're teaching your classes and where you're teaching them so that others can learn from you? Oh, absolutely. Yes, uh, I enjoy teaching. Uh, teaching, uh, educating folks about this, uh, the, the genealogy in history. I have both of them together, but uh, I try to have something going on twi- at least twice a month, if not once a month. And I, I have, I've been to many places uh, educating about the um, the Friedman plight, uh, the genealogy of history. But I, I've, I've, oh wow, a, a lot of places that I've I've traveled to, and I and I 
thoroughly enjoy it. It's a it's a desire that I have to uh, educate people. But there, like I said, there's a lot of roles uh, that can be utilized, uh, even in the Creek. I mean the Cherokee Nation, you have the Guyon Miller role that was after the Dawes role. The, you have the Clifton uh, Kern role. Or I may not say that right, but the, you have the Seminoles, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, and, and Angela and, and Terry are very uh, knowledgeable about that. So, But I, I, I mainly uh, focus on the Creek Nation first, then Cherokees, then Seminoles, because I, mm-hmm. I just I – just, stress on what's going on, the problems there that they're having. Well, we have a question coming out of the uh, chat room. Now, were the roles made available locally, or are these roles available at the National Archives also? Just give us an idea of exactly where they're located. Well, these are most of them are uh, locally, such as the Oklahoma History Center. They have some. They're, they have some. The Tulsa, you have the Tulsa uh, library, they have a, it's a genealogy library up there in Tulsa. I can't remember the name of it right there. But I know Oak Mulgee Library has a, a small portion of it. But then sometimes you do have to go to the uh, National Archives in Washington, D.C., or somewhere, something of that nature, to get access to, or to have access for these roles. Uh, there, I have traveled to um, Fort Worth, Texas, uh, for the National Archives for this region here in Oklahoma, they have some uh, excellent uh, documents there, such as one points out to me right, is the uh, the Creek Old Series cards, which were excellent. They had excellent information on those cards, more information than the Dolls Final Roll cards uh, they had. And those are only housed at the... Um, at the in Fort Worth, Texas, at the National Archives. So uh, th- there's many places you can go. You gotta you gotta do your homework for, first before you venture out to uh, go do your research and see what they have, what th- th- their inventory has uh, at the National Archives, at the Oklahoma History Center, at the Tulsa Library, um, Oak Mulgee Library. See what they have before you venture out to really go do your your researching. And then just what advice, other than what you have just given, uh, would you give to people that want to start their own research about African Native American heritage? Okay. The advice I would give them is um, don't give up. Don't give up. There's always history out there. It, when I started this years ago, back in 83, yeah, it, it the information wasn't right at your fingertips like it is now, uh, such as a, a 1900 census. You had to go to a sound index, and you had to get a number for you can go to the index. So I'm good, it's a good thing it doesn't, it's not like that anymore. But uh, don't give up. Uh, sometimes you're going to be discouraged. Uh, sometimes you may not, you can look for two or three hours, won't find anything, but simply do not give up. Just have a, just try to have that desire to keep going. You, you eventually uh, find some more things. I'm still finding uh, other things about my family. Uh, I just found a, a uh, marriage license for my 
grandmother in Phoenix, Arizona, and I never realized she got married in Phoenix, Arizona. And when I found that, I showed my sister, and she did tell me. She let me know that she was married in Phoenix, Arizona. So that was a great find for me right there. But never stop. Always have a strong desire to look uh, look for your folks. Look for your, your genealogy, your history. Okay, Ron. Well, thank you so much for your advice. We're going to just take a quick break, everybody, and come back on with Terry Ligham. He's going to be the next person on our panel to share information with us. So quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Well, in the beginning of the show, you had an opportunity to hear Angela Walton Raji and Ron Graham, and now I'm turning the show over to Terry Liggums. Terry's story is fascinating. Uh, When he shares the amazing genealogical data that he uncovered and learned about his ancestor. So, Terry, I want to welcome you to the show. Hi, Terry. Hi there. Thank you for having us on and uh, having this important discussion about this unique history. Uh, I'd like to kind of segue off of something Ron said about never giving up. Because I think I'm probably a poster child for people who should never give up. Um, when, unlike a lot of people on the panel tonight, I didn't know about my family's history. Didn't have a clue. We didn't talk about it at home. And it wasn't until my father was having some uh, physical issues that he decided to share with me this box of family photos and portraits and all this information that I had never seen before. Um, he gave it to me with the idea that I would preserve it and share it with my siblings. And I took that seriously, and I took these two large boxes that toilet paper and, and tissue came in, and I took them from Los Angeles all the way back up north to Oakland, and I started going through this stuff. 
and I came across images that I'd never seen, and one of them was of a woman in this round, oval, convex frame that, to all intents and purposes for me, appeared to be a white woman. So I got back on the phone, and I talked to him and said, who is this woman? And he started telling me about his Indian grandmother. So I'm, I'm growing up Los Angeles and Watts, and Indians were not a part of my background. Um, I went to school, and I learned black history. And this type of history, as Angela said, never shows up in history books. So we got to talking, and I would call my father maybe once a week and discuss this information until finally he started giving me names. And I didn't know his father's name. I didn't know his mother's name. But his Indian grandmother's name was Betty. That's all I knew. And she was Betty Ligon. And taking that information, I started going up to the Mormon uh, History uh, Library, and I ran into a woman named Electra Kimball Price and got to speak with her because at this time, like Ron says, uh, genealogy was handwritten notes. There were no computers. And you had to get in there and you had to dig for information. And it took me forever to find a census roll with my family on it. And once I found it, it was all misspelled. So I didn't know what I had when I had it, but I had a clue that this was my family. Again, I got back on the phone, called my father up, and I started reading off these names to him. And it, all of a sudden it started clicking, the light went on with him. And every name that I named, he knew. Because I discovered later on that my father learned about his history as a child by listening to grown folks talk on the other side of a wall. So every story he gave me had the kernel of truth to it that I had to kind of shake out and find out where the truth was, even with that Indian grandmother. Now, it took me several more years to uh, get on the computer and start to find some people who could tell me about this, and that's when I ran into Angela. She was the only person who had a clue to this information and could give me something that I could go on. And about 1995, when my wife was pregnant and having our first child, um, I walked over to the Oakland Library and I picked up a book about Chickasaw Freedmen. And I have a habit of always peeling through the indexes and table of contents to see what's in the middle of the book. And lo and behold, there was my father's Indian grandmother's name, Betty Ligon, in this book by Daniel F. Littlefield called Chickasaw Freeman and People Without a Country. And I, I checked the book out, and I read it from cover to cover, I think, in two days, and went on and purchased my own copy because I had to have this information as a resource in order to continue to do research. Once I did that, I started to uncover a story that, one, again, I'm, I'm not familiar with. I don't think the history books, other than this one book, had uh, even written about where my great-grandmother fought to have herself and almost 2,000 other people placed on the Chickasaw and Choctaw roads as blood citizens because at the time they were considered to be freedmen. And they went by the antebellum notion that whatever your mother is, that's you and that's your race. So if your mother was a freedman, if she was African-descended, you were African-descended. It didn't matter if you had Indian blood in you or not. You were not going to be an Indian. And she fought this case, and she fought this case with other people. And I started digging into the story, 
And it just became more and more fascinating to me that, you know, here's somebody um, who is living in what they call Little Dixie, and she's putting up this challenge because I remember my father telling me a story that his grandmother was standing in front of the courthouse doors, and she was keeping them open until all the people out in the country came in to sign for their land. Well, you know, I didn't place much uh, relevance in that story. I thought it was another one of my father's uh, embellishments. And then I ran into somebody else who was able to pick up a brief of this lawsuit that her name was on. And it occurred to me that maybe my father had some truth to all of his stories about his Indian grandmother and what she was doing to fight to have all these people um, get their land. Because the, the suit that she was involved in would have meant that you have people, instead of receiving 40 acres of land for every man, woman, and child, you would have them receive 320 acres of land. And at the time this happened, you could get newspaper articles that would tell you this was the biggest lawsuit in, in the country at the time. It was worth $15 million, and $15 million in 1907 is probably the equivalent of almost half a billion today. So there was a lot of land involved. And it required me to go from one record to another and, and get beyond the Dawes cards. And one of the things that I learned and I hope people will take is the beauty of footnotes. <laughs> because in Dr. Littlefield's book, the footnotes had me visiting law libraries, the National Archives. I went from the University of California, Berkeley, to the Sutro Library in San Francisco, and I found out there's, there's uh, libraries have designations, and one of them is a federal depository, and certain records are only held there. And one of the other records that I found were the congressional record serial sets, which are only held at federal depository libraries. And the one that, well, there are several in the Bay Area, but the one that was more accessible to me was the one in San Francisco Main Library. And every day I got off of work, I would go up there and peel open these old books that had all this information in it. And what I found was basically the story of Choctaw and Chickasaw Freedmen contained in these books because their relationship to the tribes was adversarial, and therefore it generated a lot of paper <laughs> and the paper all got all the way to Congress because as the tribes were fighting to um, have their land um, dissolved, so were the freedmen uh, fighting to have themselves included into that body of the tribe. And as the title Dr. Littlefield's book states, the Chickasaw freedmen for 40 years did not belong to any country. So they had to fight for everything they got. And my great-grandmother was in a part of that fight. And it just got to me, and I think this is another thing about genealogists and what we do. I think we are naturally curious people and that we are obsessed with that curiosity when it comes to digging out information on our family. And that's how I became. I became obsessed with not just this story because it also dawned on me that Betty's story was much bigger than my family. And I've always taken the position that I didn't really 
concentrate on the genealogy of my family, but I concentrated on the genealogy and history of the Choctaw and Chickasaw freedmen. And I found a greater joy in that story. And I also understood that if I did dig into that story, I would find my family's story. And it's still true to this day. Every time I peel open something, I find another layer of my family. And it's unfortunate because it was such a large group of people that I I have, uh, I have, I'm sure, close to 100 Chickasaw and Choctaw Freeman ancestors. And not only on my father's side, but also my mother's uh, father was a Choctaw Freeman descendant. Or actually, he was an actual uh, Dawson and Rowley. And so I have it on both sides. And in fact, I have them both in this same lawsuit. And the funny story about that is that somebody broke into my father's house one day and they disheveled the place. And when he got to cleaning things up, he found this little uh, letter from a lawyer in Oklahoma who was doing a genealogy search on the people who were related to my great-great-grandparents who held land in uh, the Choctaw Nation. And in that letter, he had done a very good job of doing a descending chart. And one of the things, because I didn't know my uh, mother's uh, people, all I knew was her father's name and her mother's name. And her father's name was Joe Freeman. So when I did my research, every time I came across Joe Freeman, Freeman, I would hold that document and I would save it because I didn't know where it went, how to put it together, who his people were. But if one day I knew that that document was going to play out in my family's history. When I got a copy of this lawsuit, all of those papers that I had stashed away connected to Joe Freeman all of a sudden became relevant again because I could take that information that the lawyer had with the information that I had obtained through the Dawes records, and I put my mother's family together. And I, that's when I found out that her grandmother was also part of this lawsuit equity case 7071. And so you see... Um, as genealogists, we, Ron says, we can never give up. We have to keep digging. And I think that's just our nature. I don't think that there's um, any time that we will not be looking for other information to tell our story. And that's essentially what happens when we dig up these records. We have to tell our story because no one else will and no one else has. Um, some of the records that I have looked at, land allotment records, maps of Indian territory, the Dawes courts are called cards, of course. Um, there's another little uh, record uh, that was um, that pertained to my great grandmother. It was called the 1896 Applications for Citizenship, or the M1605. There are a few uh, people who had an ancestor that actually applied for citizenship by blood, and that record is contained in this file. Well, I didn't know about it at the time, but because I like to dig. I was able to find it. Uh, the congressional records. Uh, one of the one of my favorite congressional records is a Senate Report 5013 from the 59th Congress first session. In that uh, record, uh, there's over 3,000 pages, and I think I copied every last one of them at a dime apiece. And what was in there again were people who know these. Uh, the histories were records on 
uh, Jesse and Dora McGee, Joe and Dillard Perry, Betty Ligon, uh, Empsons. These are all people who were fighting to uh, become citizens of their nation, whether it was Choctaw or Chickasaw. Well, in this one Senate report, you get all of that firsthand account that you won't get from anywhere else. You won't even get it in a Dawes records. And one of my greatest disappointments was as they held these hearings, they were about to take their um, committee into southern Oklahoma in the Ardmore area and where they could hear from the local people there. And one of the senators stated that, oh, we don't need to do that. We got enough information. But it disappointed me because I was hoping to have my great-grandmother there and hear her voice because this is the one thing that for me, someone who's never had his history as a child growing up, I guess my urges were, how can I find Betty's voice? How can I find my grandfather's voice? How can I find the voices of these people? Where are the pictures of these people? People, Because they need to be more than just names on paper. And that's part of, I guess, what I do. I want to put a face to all this information. Uh, this story has to be told. It's such a unique and a profound and compelling story that in, in, in a certain way it parallels uh, a lot of the history that you get in the United States. And remember, all those Negroes that came to Indian Territory were United States Negroes. They weren't freedmen from Indian Territory. I mean, it sounds pejorative, but this is how they characterize themselves. So we have a separate history, and, and maybe that's why you don't see um, the slave state of uh, Indian Territory on a map, but it should be. Okay, And the fact that the Cherokees now have to admit the descendants of their former slaves, it's about time. And then you have to ask the question, what about the Choctaw? What about the Chickasaw? What about the Creeks? Why aren't they following suit? Here we are in the 21st century, and they have this kind of history, which they try to separate themselves from, and yet it's as much a part of them as it is a part of us. And it's tragedy uh, that is only compounded by people ignoring it. And hopefully, you know, um, we can be a conduit for people to learn a little bit more because there's a lot of information out there, and the four of us cannot be the only ones doing it. That's right. And, Terry, I could just hear your passion, and I could just imagine how it feels to review those documents and say, I wish my great-grandmother's voice could have been there. You know, they could have heard her. Uh, you're doing something, the four of you basically are are there to really create that awareness for hundreds of people. Uh, just, I mean, how many Chickasaw and Choctaw Freeman were there? Do you know? Um, it, well, there are, as I recall, about 4,500 Chickasaw Freedmen. And it's interesting uh-huh. that, that with that number because practically half of them were mixed with Chickasaws. So, uh, and this was one of the reasons why the tribe did not want to adopt them because even in the congressional record it says we can't adopt them because we will be known as a, a Negro tribe. There were so many of them. And I'm, I'm trying to remember the number on the uh, Choctaw Freeman, and I'm pretty sure Angela has that information. I did write it down because I knew you were going to ask me that question. <laughs> <laughs> Well, certainly you oh, here have it is. Here it really. Is. Here it is. I got it. I knew okay. you were going to ask me. 
There were 4,500 Chickasaw Free, approximately 4,500 Chickasaw Freemen and approximately 4,200 Choctaw. Okay. Okay, so this is just information. There were 4,000 Cherokee Freemen and 5,000 Creek. So, as you can see, there were, and these were the ones that were documented. Right. But just think about the descendants. I mean, there's so many descendants out there. I mean, they're trying to even find the records, just as you said. You grew up in California. You didn't know it. But now look how much information you know about your your ancestral roots. And so I'm hoping that those who are listening are listening to all of the resources that are available to find additional information. Well, it's interesting. Since the time Angela, because I remember Angela in 1999, we had this little pact that we would both get a website up because the the information wasn't out there. And so in 1999, I think, and in fact, it was around Labor Day weekend, <laughs> we had to launch these websites because there was no information out there. Okay, and now I'm, I'm looking at, I get people asking me all the time uh, how can I help them do certain things with their history how can I find this information and with the advent of DNA it really adds a little wrinkle to my uh, research that I kind of love right now because it confirms everything that Betty was trying to do when Mm -hmm. I can I can match up with another person who on the surface has nothing to do with me but we have a common ancestor, and it can only come from a chicken saw. That's fascinating to me, okay? That, that is confirms fascinating. my father's story, okay? I wish he was here that is so fa- I could tell him this. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it confirms everything that he heard as a child, and yet um, he had this certain um, attitude towards Native Americans that was belligerent, <laughs> Okay. And that's the best way I can describe it. <laughs> that's the best way. And, well, we're going yeah. to move, Terry. We're going to move on and come back to you uh, when it's close to the end and bring sure. on Nika Sewell-Smith. So, Nika? I'm here. Nika? Oh, Nika, uh, I am looking forward to hearing what you have to share with us. Folks, Nika is a direct descendant of uh, Ike Rogers, the well-known U.S. Deputy Marshal who served Indian Territory under Judge Isaac C. Parker. So, Nika, tell us your story. Well, um, mine is pretty similar to everybody else who, you know, has spoken tonight, Ron, Angela, Carrie. Uh, I grew up in a a fairly small family um, with regard to my father's side, and you know, there was always murmuring that, you know, somebody, you know, that we were Native American or we were Cherokee. And as I started getting into genealogy research, I was more focused on my mother's side of the family because that's the side that was having reunions and it was much larger and I knew a lot more people. And, um, you know, by the time um, I graduated from college, everyone in my immediate family, with the exception of my siblings, both my grandparents, my aunt, my father, and my only first cousin on my father's side had all died. And so I did not have anyone in my immediate family, so to speak, that I could call and ask questions about, you know, the family history. And so I had to rely a lot on my mother, and I'm so grateful to her because she remembered a lot 
you know, despite the fact that this wasn't her family. But uh, at that point, that's when I got into contact with my dad's first cousin. And they were really the ones in particular, you know, one of the older um, first cousins that my father had. He was the one that really kind of sewed into me with the family history was um, it turns out that my family pretty much was largely based in Chicago and Kansas City, Kansas, and that's all I knew. But as I talked to my father's first cousin, he relayed to me the details of how our family was tied to the Cherokee Nation and, you know, who our ancestor was. And he kept telling me about Ike Rogers, Ike Rogers, and I actually have a blog post that I wrote where I found this book, and, and in the book was supposed to be this ancestor, and I still have it. And it's a picture of a man is dead. He's literally laying dead on this on this you know cooling rack, right, or table. And I was trying to figure out for the life of me how in the world am I connected to this man? And it just so happens it was Ike, and um, I discovered that he was my great great grandfather, and that he was my grandmother, my paternal grandmother's grandfather. And that he, you know, at that point, you know, we had the internet, and I just googled him, and there was so much information on him, like I could not believe how much information, like I was almost overwhelmed by what I was seeing. And um, for the longest time, I didn't really realize that there were more options out there for me. Like it wasn't just that I had to rely on what other people were saying online about him, you know, that I really need to look into the sources that they were getting this information from. And so I just started this quest on my own. And initially, uh, you know, I definitely connected with Angela. She's been an immense help with me, um, for me, and I can definitely see Terry as well. Uh, she basically identified that Ike was in the U.S. color troops, and she was like, oh, well, he had a pension. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's that? I was really at the beginning of my genealogy journey when I connected with Angela, and so she gave me the information on how to order. I ordered it, and the rest is history because so much was laid out in that file. Um, oh, my gosh, I don't even know where to start. Um, as Terry said, you just keep unearthing things because this, this set of records, these people that we're talking about, the freedom of the five civilized tribes, you know, it's one thing where you can rely on a U.S. census to tell you a lot of different facts. But with the people who are freedmen of the five civilized tribes, you don't have a U.S. census until 1900. That's the first census you have. So just imagine, you know, only being able to rely on a census from 1900, whereas some people, you get those additional years like 1880, 1870. If you're lucky, you're in a state that has a state census, but the majority of us do not have that you know, available to us. And so as I, you know, learned that fact and came to accept that fact, I discovered that the Friedman records are, to me, in some ways more robust than what I was able to locate for my other branches of the family that lived outside of the territory. So I actually have a fuller picture of my ancestors during Reconstruction and the period after the Civil War and before the Civil War than I do for my ancestors who were not, you know, members um, or, you know, who were not uh, former slaves or, or freedmen. Um, and so, you know, we talked about records, and I just really want to want to reiterate the fact that doing uh, Indian Territory research, doing freedmen research really pushes you to look outside of your normal set of records. And if you're somebody who thinks that you have a tie to these nations, of course, we already talked about the Dodge enrollment cards. That's probably the, the, the first thing that people are going to look for. The, the application packets that are attached to those cards, the numbers that are on the cards will tell you how to get to the application. When it comes to the Cherokee, you're talking, a, there's also Cherokee censuses that took place, and those were separate from the U.S. census. Those were actually commissioned by the Cherokee Nation, and they have freedmen on them. 
So those are available for various, various years. You also have, as uh, Ron talked about, the Wallace roll, which was generated, and as he mentioned as well, a lot of the roles or censuses that were taken up of the freedmen and the um, people in the five civilized tribes were done to administer payments based on land sales and other transactions, you know, just money that was given to them or, you know, that they received from the government and other sources, which really usually the, the, the federal government. And in order for them to disperse it, they would have to find out who was around and who qualified, and so these roles would do that. So the Wallace role is definitely one of those roles. Kern Clifton followed the Wallace role in the Cherokee Nation, and that role was because the Wallace role was so highly disputed with, with regard to the people who were on it, and so they created another role. There's also newspapers. That's been a huge amount of assistance and help for me um, looking for my family in the Indian Territory. There were newspapers in the Indian Territory. Um, and as well, you can't just necessarily rely on those that were in the IT. You rely on those that were in southeast Kansas as well as Arkansas, which harkens back to what Ms. Angela talked about with regard to where she grew up in Fort Smith and the fact that it bore the Cherokee Nation. I mentioned the 1900 U.S. Census. That would be for the um, Oklahoma Territory. You also have vital records. Um, I think it was Terry or no, maybe it was Ron mentioned getting a delayed birth certificate for his father. Well, Oklahoma this year just released vital records for the state that you can search and you can order and the search is free. So if you have a family member or someone you think was born in Oklahoma, you got to remember birth certificates are, you know, like a 20th century invention, so they may not have more. They may have a delayed one. Check out the Oklahoma Vital Statistics website to see where they were born. If they were born in a county that was part of the territory, that's a huge clue for you. Also, Google Books. I will bring this up as well. The um, congressional serials that Terry talked about that, that's been a huge resource. One of the things that I've, I found that was a goldmine for me was testimony from Ike Rogers in front of a Senate subcommittee on Indian Affairs, and it was on the condition of the freedmen in the Cherokee Nation. And he talks about how they were treated. And in light of the, the verdict that came down yesterday, it's just, I just can't even put into words what it means to read his testimony now and seeing how, you know, even back then, his testimony took place May 20th, 1885, how the freedmen were being marginalized even then. And the fact that he, you know, was confident enough in himself and not fearing for his life or his safety or our family safety to really talk about what was going on and the fact that, you know, although, you know, our, our family or that he was considered, you know, a full member or citizen of the nation and that he was supposed to have the ability to vote, he was supposed to have the ability for his children to be able to go to school, to own land, all of these things, that they, that they, they were not given equity with that and that if, you know, uh, they even ask questions like, if somebody kills you, would they be prosecuted? And and he flat out said no. Um, it, it mirrors very similarly, similarly what we're dealing with right now in terms of people of color and immigrants in the United States. And so, um, you know, yesterday's ruling for me was, was, was a long time coming because it's something that, you know, I don't, I don't just, it's just like Terry. I don't just have an ancestor that I know that was around to see it. I have an ancestor who was seminal in fighting and advocating so that I would have a right to send in my application and have it be approved. So, um, you know, that's just kind of where I'm coming from with this. And, and something I also really want to implore people to really research is, you know, and just be careful about, hey, you know, this is, this is a very complicated history that we all have that everyone has talked about tonight. 
And I think what makes it even more complicated and hard to wrap your mind around is the fact that, you know, these these groups that we're talking about, the five civilized tribes, have been, you know, marginalized for, for decades. And it's hard to wrap your mind around the fact that they were marginalized and then in turn they marginalized their, their former slaves and the descendants of their former slaves. And how can that happen? And it's almost as though freedmen of the five civilized tribes we have endured Jim Crow twice or endured segregation twice and the fallout from that twice versus just having to deal with it once, you know, at the hands of, of folks that were supporters of segregation. And so um, I really honestly feel like yesterday was, was reparation. I really do, for, for at least for the Cherokee Nation, and I would hope that, that, that you know, that folks would, would get together and, and advocate on behalf of the Chickasaw Freedmen and the Choctaw Freedmen and the Creek Freedmen, you know, as a result of what happened yesterday. But it was, it's been a long battle, and that, that's one of the things I definitely want to make sure that everybody understands is that, you know, this has been going on since the treaty was written. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, the, the Cherokee Nation selling lands to the U.S. government and then failing to, you know, distribute the, the, the payment to the Freedmen, and just distributing it to the by blood members, you know, every time that happened, the freedmen had to go and sue the Cherokee Nation so they would get their their portion. And yesterday's ruling was 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 the exact same thing. It's the exact same. Well, we have a comment coming out of the chat room. By the way, all of the panelists are, are live right now, so panelists, please feel free to chime in. But all that makes yesterday's verdict all the more sweeter. Your ancestors yeah. are proud that you are keeping their history and struggles alive and passed down to the next generation. Amen belongs right there. And so, everyone, all of the panelists, you are live so if you want to chime in and just say what what you feel people need to hear before we close out the show tonight. I'll start with Angela. Angela, you have any comments that you want to share? And by the way, Nika, if you want to continue or you had additional information, please feel free to do it. But I've opened it up for all of the panelists. Okay. Sure. I, I would just – oh, go so I'm sorry, Angela. I was just going to add um, – we all, and I, I think all of us have taught um, folks how to do genealogy. That's something that we all do. And I think for me as a presenter, the question that I get the most often is, you know, oh, you know, or the, the comment that's always made is, oh, you know, we're, we're Native American. How can I find that? And in some ways I feel like that, that's been made more okay or more acceptable than being of African descent. And so I would just I would just sort of admonish everybody that's listening, especially those that feel like they have a tie to a certain nation or whatever, you know, really do the work and, and don't dis, don't don't dismiss the evidence when it's not leaning in that direction. Um, I've seen people who just don't accept what they found, you know, that that's true. And, and here's the other piece: you might actually find your your family as a dog as dog enrollees. In my situation. I had to go back to great-grandparents. My great-grandfather, two of my, my grandmother's oldest sisters, they all received allotments. They were original dogs and rollies. And you might find that your family are, is mentioned in the dog files, but that they weren't approved. 
And that's okay because the files can be gigantic. There could be there's I mean, I'm sure everybody else would agree. Sometimes the the the, the denial files are better than the approval <laughs> because you have all of these people who have come out of the woodwork trying to verify that the person was where they were supposed to be or they're who they say they are and 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 that's still useful. Don't feel like you aren't validated because you can't quote unquote get in or or that you know, uh, you don't have a blood tie or whatever that is. Like, there's still so much available to you, genealogically speaking. Just don't be short-sighted about that. Right. I agree with you. The the information is so rich. Just reading what the witnesses are saying. And they are really telling the story of your family. Even if it is rejected, the information is there. Angela, Absolutely. you have any comments to add? Sure. Oh, I do. Uh, well, first of all, the records are rich, and I uh, wanted to kind of just point out that there are over 20,000 files of Freedmen records. Now, understand, the Freedmen are primarily the tribes that are now based in what is now known as the state of Oklahoma. So if your folks lived in Louisiana or Tennessee or Georgia, they're not on the Dawes Rose, but many people have family that's scattered literally from coast to coast. So there could be still, um, through marriage, um, certainly some people who come from this. We're talking about, uh, in 1906, there was an article in a newspaper um, out of Oklahoma, and um, uh, it was really looking at the numbers. This was the Muskogee Cemetery, by the way, which was a black newspaper published in Muskogee. And it gave, up to that time, this is 1906, the roles closed officially in 1914, um, there were 20,000 freedmen that had been processed through that DOS process, uh, 3,900 Cherokee freedmen, 5,200 Choctaw freedmen, 4,900 Chickasaw freedmen, 5,500 Creek freedmen, and uh, 850 something, 857 or so uh, Seminole freedmen. 20,000 people who were put on these records, which is probably Scattered, the 20,000 people are represented on 14,000 files. That's a lot of files. It's a lot of people. I will support That's what you said. That's a lot of descendants out there. Oh, mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands. One final thing, though, certainly in light of, of the discussion, in light of things in Oklahoma, I'll leave with a beautiful quote um, um, that came out of the ruling. And this is something, because it's not just a Cherokee story, because it's also a Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminole story. And the quote was, uh, the court finds it confounding that the Cherokee Nation historically had no qualms about regarding freedmen as Cherokee property, yet continues, even after 150 years, hmm. to balk when confronted with the legal imperative to treat them as Cherokee hmm. people, while the Cherokee Nation might persist in its design to perpetuate a moral injustice. This court will not be complicit in the perpetuation of a legal injustice. So our Cherokee people, we're applauding, but guess what? The Choctaw Nation, Chickasaw Nation, even the Seminole Nation that has citizens who are freedmen, but they get no benefits, and, of the course, the Creek Nation. Citizen. Right. Seriously. Well, we have they, a question coming out of the push. chat. This is uh, Genealogy Jen is saying, well, does the tribe lose something by acknowledging that they had slaves? 
Absolutely not. Um, the state of Mississippi didn't lose anything after the Civil War, and certainly plenty of slaves were there. The tribe, um, there were some <laughs> yeah. lands that were taken away from them in the 1860s, but this is 2017, and the tribes are federally supported and federally recognized. And uh, the fact is that maybe they're losing admiration from people who have thought that they were always victims and never knew that they were enslavers as well, that Mm -hmm. they were participants in black chattel slavery. But while the Cherokee Nation, as the judge said, was comfortable and even balking at the fact that they were comfortable with still mistreating their Cherokee citizens, the question and the spotlight now is going to shift to the Choctaw Nation, Chickasaw Nation, Creek Nation, and Seminole Nation. But in the meantime, we as genealogists, we have a family story to go and find. Those records are there. I will point out they are on Ancestry. They are on Fold 3. And the land allotment records are available on um, uh, Family Search as well. So uh, these records are there. They're at our fingertips. And it is, you know, it's a story to tell. And it's not just the story of the poor folks who went, who were forced from the south in the trail of tears. Oh, they had to hide. They had to run those poor people. No one cries for those who were crying also on the trail who were bring drug as black chattel slaves on the same trail of tears. You know, I always also think that yeah. instead of a story of that of, of victimization, when you start to dig into these records, you see a people who are strong fighting for their rights. You have Cherokee and Choctaw Freedmen Associations that developed during this time, and they were fighting tooth and nail to establish schools for their children. They were trying to uh, make sure that just, one of the questions that always bugged me, when they had the Oklahoma land runs, these people could have left, but they, they decided to stay because that was the only home they knew. And they were determined to make a home there with the people they knew. Now, it's not a a matter of us being uh, scarred by slavery, but I think it's the oppressor who has the scars, and they need to understand that they have some healing to do, okay? Because you can't keep telling us we're down and you got your foot on us. It doesn't work anymore, okay? Yes. And I, I, I don't see any of my ancestors that way. Uh, and and more, more importantly, I think learning my history has been empowering. Angela, just think about the people we've touched in the time that we've been doing this together. Yeah, you know, yeah. A lot of people sure. have been exposed to this history as a result of this. To even come this far to have this show <laughs> tells yeah. me a lot about what I have been doing. But as Angela I used to say, we get, we didn't put in our 20,000 hours. Okay. Oh. What's that? Become, <laughs> we have put in a lot more than that. But I don't and, think we, and we appreciate what you burden. all have done because right now you're exposing a lot of people to information that simply was not there. People didn't know about it. We have a comment coming Bernice, out of the chat Bernice, that says, I didn't know Bernice, anything about it until there. Angela talked about it once. And I spent years well, in school learning about Native history. Never once were freemen mentioned. This is a comment coming out of the chat. Yes, Ron, you had a, uh, a statement or something you wanted to say? Oh, I'm just agreeing with the, everything that's been talked about. It's, it's 
excellent dialogue, awesome dialogue here. I was just wanting to say one thing. I, this morning I was on the radio also talking about this issue right here. People were calling in and, and saying some things such as the freedmen don't have any Indian blood. And so I, I called back in and I stated uh, the Dawes Commission made two roles, the bad blood role and the freedman role. Now, if they de- deemed you a freedman, they didn't even list your blood quantum. The equity 7771 proves that alone, that these people did have Indian blood, but it w- they were on the freedman roll, but it's, it was not listed. And that was the only difference between those roles. They were full citizens. From the Treaty of 1866 to the Dawes Commission, everyone was treated as, as a full citizen. Period. Yeah. Just like the well, 13th, 14th, and 15th uh, uh, Amendment of the Constitution, United States Constitution, you're, you're a citizen of the American, uh, the United States. You, you're a full-blood citizen. You're not a one-half American or three-quarters American. It, it, it's, it's terrible how they use that blood quantum. And, and I know more about the blood quantum, but that's all I wanted to state about that, though. I will Can I thank you. Can I on that I'm, for a little bit? Uh, can let so me drill down on that for a little bit, please. Because okay. Okay. I think it goes I think the history goes deeper than that. Because Absolutely. one of the things that you have to understand during this period of time, they were dissolving the the lands of the Native Americans so railroads could come through that territory, so yes. they could get mineral rights, so they could drill for right. oil. It's always about the money. Okay? Now, the fact that they didn't want to make these people citizens of the tribes, that meant that they were not going to get an equal share of the money. Okay? Yes. They were not going to be treated right about the money. And it's always going to get – in fact, you look at contemporary times. You look at the times that was happening in 1898. You got uh, the Cuba is in a turmoil because the United States is trying to uh, uh, grab land. Hawaii's in trouble because they're grabbing land. Panama's in trouble. And Indian Territory's in trouble. All about money and all about land. Okay, there was there's there's an underlying story there when Standard Oil is sitting there waiting on the drill in Indian Territory, when the Union Pacific is ready to cut uh, ties and and plant rails across the country so they can move cattle and other goods throughout the United States. You know, that's another part of this story. This it goes beyond just being the people. Okay, we were we were being violated just like the Native Americans were being violated. But it seems our violation was a little bit deeper. Yeah, I was, I was also, also going to I was, uh, I was add, um, just to talk, just to chime in on this conversation about blood quantum as well. You know, as far as I'm concerned, people can sit up and argue that until the cows come home. Yeah. Just, 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 let, just let everybody take a DNA test. Just That's all I got to say. If I can get, I don't I can think it's going to happen, Nico. You, which I, yeah, I know it's not going to happen. We all know why it's not going to happen. But if somebody came to me and would purge a lot of people off the rolls if DNA testing was required, we'll, we'll just put that out there. The other thing that I will say as well is I didn't expect to find, really to find any any alliance or connection to people who were considered aristocracy of the Cherokee Nation, but I did find them after doing DNA testing. And at this point, me and my family have upwards of 20 descendants from a chief, not just a little person. I'm talking about the, one, of the, one of the leaders of the Cherokee Nation. Yes, and still, because my ancestor was listed on the Freedman Roll without a blood quantum until yesterday, I did not have the ability 
to be registered as a member, despite the fact that I all of my grandmother's siblings were were full fledged members of the tribe, voting, involved in in in, in freedom organizations in their respective locations. So that's I just I just want to kind of let folks know you might have a blood quantum, but you might not, your folks may not be on the rolls or they might be on the wrong roll. Is the whole issue of blood quantum by, by virtue of them allowing intermarried whites and adopted whites to have the same rights? They they virtually obliterated the the I argument so. of blood quantum. Yeah, it, it, yeah. It's, well, it's, I just want to jump in a little bit on that comment. I just wanted to just make a small comment, just in terms of, of you know the whole blood politics concept, and it's absolutely crazy. First of all, we're talking about an era, you know, blood serum hadn't even been discovered. So how do you measure blood? You don't measure blood. Some guys in a nice suit from Washington look at you and uh, put down some sort of estimation of what they have decided you are. But, you know, it's kind of interesting how people respond. Certain things are considered acceptable. If a person is of African descent, uh, of descent, their pain, their suffering is totally acceptable to the, the larger mindset of the country. And when freedmen, okay, who were descendants of their enslaved people came, okay, yeah, 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 here is somebody, uh, Aunt Tubby, what is your blood quantum? Okay, let's put this down. Oh, but here's Aunt Tubby's daughter. Oh, well, you know, her mother was a slave, as, as Ron was told, nothing but a slave. Somehow, freedmen were told, and this was argued in that hearing in D.C. I was there, Ron was there, Marilyn was there, David was there. And uh, it was clearly pointed out by the attorney. Freedmen were suddenly told, your blood doesn't count. Yeah, your daddy yeah. could have been Indian, but your blood does not count. And, of course, yeah. we see the backlash when people are, you know, killed today unjustly, and someone says, but our lives do matter. Suddenly the world takes offense because, oh, well, we can't say that their lives matter. All lives matter but we're still told that ours don't. We were told in Indian Territory our blood didn't count. Sally, my great-grandmother, whom I knew, I knew her. She died in 61. I was a child. And, you know, here she was put on a row. Her father was Choctaw. She spoke the language. But she was told her blood didn't count. And that is what blood quantum is really saying. Although the irony, you can be one seven thousandth degree of Indian blood and the rest of course is white except that little droplet and if you prick your finger that blood that little quantum's bled out by now. But if it's white and Indian, even a minuscule amount, it matters. It counts. And that's what the whole blood politics has done. It has told people, oh, African blood is mixed up in there. Oh no, 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 that does not count. And that's what that's done. And it's affected our own mindset. Because yeah. blood shouldn't even be the issue. And you even have people of color, you know, um, you know oh, i got to prove I've got some Indian blood. So uh, they'll feel better about themselves. And, no, you'll feel better once you just tell your story, embrace who you are. Of course, your story matters, your blood matters, but it's not about blood. It's about your role, your part, your presence, your history. And we've got to tell that. You've got to tell that. So let's. we're going to close out this show, and I'm going to ask each of you 
just each of you to give a parting remark. So, Terry, starting with you, do you have any parting words for for the listeners tonight? <laughs> um, I, I, all I can ask people, you know, um, do your homework, uh, read, because you will get a better understanding of what our ancestors went through. Um, uh, one of the things I'm trying to do now is uh, recreate the communities of freedmen through some of the records and, and show how they kind of depended on, on one another, how those families developed. And you can only do that by really doing the research, getting involved in it. If we become so obsessed with um, just, well, I, I know it's not for everybody. It, maybe it's just for me. But I cannot get obsessed with my family and the fact that I have an ancestor that wanted to be kick us all by blood because that will stop me from really telling this larger story. And I think it's mm-hmm. the larger story that's more important because once you start to see that, then all this other stuff falls into place. And you see uh, the, 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 the rationale behind why certain people did certain things, why they even went to the extent of saying that you have to be married in order to make your children legitimate. What's the whole concept of being legitimate in order to be recognized? Okay? So you have to do the homework in order to understand this period of history and this particular place because it is unique to American history and it has never gotten on the history books like it should and it deserves a little bit more space. I I don't know. You guys are back east from D.C. Is there anything in that uh, African-American museum that tells you this story? Because I really don't Um, know. No, there isn't. And there There needs to be, doesn't there? There There is nothing on the street. There's nothing there. There's nothing right. There. Nothing there. No, okay, and we, we can't tell our story. Yes, I'll simply say, number one, the records are there. Uh, tell the story. Uh, learn the greater story. I could have stuck with just finding Sam and Sally and, and Grandpa Sam and, you know, gone off into the sunset, so to speak, figuratively. But no, it was imperative that I learned the story of the Choctaw Freedmen. It was imperative that I learned the story of the freedmen of the other tribes because we were part, we were all part of, of something that was going on that was unique. And, of course, that story is just a small chapter in the larger chapter of what was happening as, as those once enslaved in the United States, our neighbors to the east uh, of where we were in the territory, were going through. And um, I think once we place our story in the proper Context will be able to understand so much. Context, context, context. And it is not about, you know, cheekbones, hair length, grandma sitting on her hair, not about feeling one with the great spirit. You can have any kind of religion that you wish. It is not about putting a feather in your throat. It is not about that. It is about putting your story, telling that story properly and embracing it. It's all good. It's all part of the human narrative that we seek. And uh, I'm always willing to help people. If your folks are from the territory, certainly um, uh, we're all on Facebook. We're all out there. And uh, I hope to tell that story more frequently. And thank you, Bernice, for allowing us to yeah. platform. Yeah, but thank you. Thank you for coming on. Ron, do you have any parting words? Yes, first of all, I want to. I'm truly grateful to be on this panel. For one thing, thank thank you, uh, Bernice, for that. I just want to say one thing because 
Today, when I was on the radio this morning, they stressed that blood quantum. There were so many questions about the blood quantum. Freeman don't have any blood quantum, things of that nature. There was something out there called the Burke Act, B-U-R-K-E, Burke Act. And it talked about the blood quantum, and it was what they did, they really didn't. The Dawes Commission, they did not want to know your Indian blood quantum. They wanted to know your how much white blood you had because the more white blood you had, the more intelligent you were. That's what the blood quantum was all about. White supremacy. It, 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 yes, absolutely. Yep. And and it had Burke. That's the Burke Act because um, that act was to see if you were uh, capable and uh, and it was it was capable and it was something else to go along with that. But the blood quantum is is to me is, is totally ridiculous in my in my studies and in, in my research. Okay, so. But the Treaty of 1866, I tell people at these presentations, well, it's in a coma right now because these tribes are, are not, you know, fully uh, respecting the Treaty of 1866. But that ruling yesterday, you all just don't know. I've been doing this since 1983. That ruling right there pointed out the Treaty of 1866, how valid it is. And I... And I I thank God for that ruling. It's a blessing, and I want these other tribes to follow suit on that. So, and and that's that's all I have to say. And thanks a lot. Okay, and then Nika, you have any parting words? Absolutely. Um, just to kind of echo what um, Ron said, and he's completely right about the Burke Act and the fact that the Bureau of Indian Affairs that they would classify people based on, on whether or not they were content, competent and capable Absolutely. if they were mixed yes. race. And that's, yes. that's what he's talking about, and that's when they would give preferential treatment to those people. And I just want to kind of reiterate to people, you know, the whole idea of, quote, unquote, good slave owners or they were good to their slaves is a narrative that needs to be completely removed from the dialogue when we're having conversations like this about chattel slavery, especially within the United States. And I say that because, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of working on something right now where I really illuminate the fact that slavery in the territory was no different than slavery in, in the United States. And the Hello. fact that there were slave codes and the fact that there were, uh, uh, you know, a way that, 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 that the enslaved were written about in the newspaper and, and, and the fact that there were lynchings in the territory. See, this is, not, this is not any different than the United States. I think people have walked around with blinders on or with a haze over their eyes because of the atrocities that had been inflicted upon the five civilized tribes. But as I mentioned earlier, despite the fact that they were oppressed, they didn't oppress their own people. And so, you know, with that said, you know, we have to really be careful, especially as African-American people, as people of color, you know, claiming Native ancestry and ties. I always have to go back to the question, are you really sure you want this? <laughs> Are you really sure you want this? Because it's going to challenge what you have been taught, not just on the level of slavery, but also about who we've held up and propelled in, in, in yeah. our American lexicon. There are Confederate statues in what was the, the, the Native American nation. There, there, yeah. You can go online and, and read treaties between the Native American, the five civilized tribe nations, and the Confederacy. They were so, Confederates. They were Confederates. So I just I ask again, 
Be, before you let it rattle out of your mouth, are you really sure you want this? Because if you yep. do, there are going to be nights and days where your thought process, you're, you're going to question the humanity of other people who are connected to you, perhaps maybe by blood or who made certain decisions on behalf of your ancestors. And it, it's the exact same way that you are when you start tracing your ancestors as place, but it's more complicated because of the people who are involved. So as, as everyone else mentioned, be diligent about your research. You know, ask questions. We're all here. We're all available. And, and I just cannot wait. I know for me personally, all the folks that I know that were attached to my family when it comes to DNA and on this branch of my family who are freedmen, I'm really going to be advocating to them to, to get registered and to really guide them through the process of, of becoming a member because th- that whole challenge that I just described, it made me not want to pursue membership. But I, I sent my application in six times. It got sent back five times. And I did it because it's my birthright. So that's that's what I want to end with. It is your birthright. It is your birthright. Well, I want to just thank all of you, Terry Ligham, Angela Walton Raji, Nika Sewell Smith, and Ron Graham for just providing us with all the information that we need to know. And everyone else, Please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond Facebook page, and also remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday, and also watch for the Black Progen Live with host Nika Sewell Smith. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. And I want to give a special shout-out for Patricia Glover-Hauer in the chat room. Thank you, Patricia, for holding down the chat room tonight. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander-Bennett, and co-host Patricia Glover-Hauer. Good night, everyone. Good night, Good night, Angela, Ron, Good night. Terry, and Nika. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.